brace yourself because you're about to dive into another free first hour episode of the Higher Side Chats. And we just want to let you know that whether you're looking for a companion through your paranoid insomnia, entertaining yourself through one of life's mundane activities, or trying to ward off the internal screams of all those sad, smothered souls around the office, THC is here. And you should know that every episode of the Higher Side Chats has an entire second hour for Plus members. Sign up at thehiresidechatsplus.com and you'll get years of Plus show archives, lifetime forum access, a special invite to Greg Carlwood's monthly joint sessions, MP3s of THC music, bonus episodes, tour videos, and 10% off t-shirts, grinders, and whatever else ends up in the Higher Side store. It's $8 a month that you won't miss, so become a Plus member and treat yourself in these troubled times. Always action-packed and commercial-free, which means you'll unfortunately never hear my voice again. Masters almost surely have a plan There's clearly maybe something there Beyond the realm of man Until we've thoroughly tested Every last close-chested view Find the more you think you know Unless you really do Where would we be without THC? We know the lying to us Just don't know to what degree Where would we be without THC? All right, higher side chatters, we have talked ad nauseum about the carefully crafted worldview that has descended upon academia and the wider culture which carefully filters out many important aspects of self-discovery, creativity, independence, coming-of-age ritual, alternative energy, spirit contact, paranormal experiences, and anything that falls outside of the paradigm of rigid materialism or distracts the individual from getting some sad, safe, mid-level job at one of the elite's well-established corporate pipelines to mediocrity. But we have also discussed the impressive foresight of people like Charles Fort who saw this as just a phase and knew that on the other side of scientism, we would have bright minds who no longer ignored the anomalous but engaged with it. We've been lucky enough here to host a few of these academically accredited pioneers of the paranormal pushing up against the boundaries of their disciplines from parapsychology with Dr. Dean Radin earlier in the year to now paraanthropology with today's guest, Dr. Jack Hunter. If you're unfamiliar, Dr. Hunter is an anthropologist exploring the borderlands of consciousness, religion, and the paranormal, living in the hills of mid-Wales. His doctoral research with the University of Bristol examines the experiences of spirit mediums and their influence on the development of self-concepts and models of consciousness. He is the founder and editor of Paraanthropology, Journal of Anthropological Approaches to the Paranormal. He is the author of Why People Believe in Spirits, Gods, and Magic, as well as his recently released Engaging the Anomalous. He's also the editor of Damned Facts, 40 and Essays on Religion, Folklore, and the Paranormal, as well as co-editor with Dr. David Luke on Talking with the Spirits, Ethnographies from Between the Worlds, but that is not all, folks. He's also the founding member of the Afterlife Research Center, and Jack is currently working on the One School, One Planet project to develop a mainstream permaculture curriculum for schools. If he was doing any more, I'd never get this introduction over with the freshly minted PhD advocate of the reenchantment of the world and ally of the spirits. Dr. Jack, my man, welcome to the higher side. Thanks so much for having me. <laughs> you got it. I'm psyched to have you here. I think this is going to be a hell of a time. I think the work you've done is super impressive. You've had great interviews on Rune Soup and Skeptico with two of my favorite people. And you've made some great points about what anthropology and religious studies could be, saying that they have the potential to be the X-Files of the humanities, which I like a lot. And maybe that's a good place to start. Tell us a bit more about your approach to anthropology or why it might be a good discipline to actually incorporate more of the weird things we like around here. Yeah. My approach to anthropology has been quite broad, really. So I basically treat anthropology as the study of human beings, which is what it is. You know, If you break the word anthropology up into two parts, you've got anthropos, which means human beings, and ology is the study of human beings. 
And, you know, all of the stuff that we associate with the paranormal and the strange and the weird, all of it is, you know, bound around human beings. So from the very get-go, anthropology is kind of uniquely placed as the study of human beings to investigate the paranormal. It's also uniquely placed to investigate the paranormal because of the things that anthropologists have investigated, you know, going right back to the very beginnings of the discipline. They've always been interested in questions of belief, questions of religion, engaging with the possibility of spirits. Well, I say engaging with the possibility of spirits existing, but actually, for the most part, many anthropologists have tried to kind of reduce spirits away, tried to explain them away in different, you know, reduce them down to like medical materialist models or cognitive models and things like that. Mm -hmm. But there's been a continuous stream throughout from the very beginning of anthropologists who have kind of pushed against that kind of reductionism. So um, what I'm doing really is a continuation of that line of research, going right back to people like um, E.B. Tyler and his work on animism, the work of people like Andrew Lang, who's a famous folklorist, and he proposed something way back in the 19th century called comparative psychical research which really is paranthropology as I understand it. And then this whole long line of researchers who have engaged with ontological possibilities, particularly people like Edith Turner, who I'm very, very fond of as an anthropologist, and maybe we'll talk about her a bit later. But yeah, that's what I've been doing. I've been tapping into that current of interest in pushing the boundaries of anthropology. Yeah, I think it's really interesting because to some degree, the emphasis tends to be on, oh, consciousness is such a component of these experiences. We need to be focused on parapsychology, which is useful, of course, but there are communities of people experiencing paranormal and magical things all the time, engaging with spirits all the time. And in anthropology, instead of researching them from that condescending position of saying, oh, well, it's really fun to study what other people believe and their superstitions, but we in the West have figured it all out and we know that there's really nothing there. It's an arbitrary study at that point if you're really not going to assume that what they're interacting with is real. And we could learn a lot more if we just took them at their word. Exactly. And that's what I've tried to do with my research with spirit mediums in Bristol is not to go in there with assumptions about what they do, but to kind of experience it firsthand and to kind of take their understandings on board and see where it leads. And not surprisingly, it's led down some interesting rabbit holes. <laughs> right, because you have had some rather strange paranormal experiences or sightings over the years that seemed pretty hard to put back in the box, right? Could you tell us mm. about a couple of those? There's a few different things that come to mind. I mean, Going back to my kind of involvement in anthropology and these kinds of questions, there's a few experiences that have led me down this path. One of them was a psychedelic experience that I had the very first time that I had magic mushrooms. And I saw these small fairy-like creatures, I called them fairies at the time, but perhaps they look a little bit more like goblins or gremlins or something. That was a big experience for me. And it was a big influence on the direction that my career has taken, I suppose. <laughs> I'm sure we could talk a lot about uh, psychedelics and entity encounters and that kind of thing. <laughs> sure. <laughs> and then a few years later, when I first went to university, I started to realize that anthropology provided this, like a really useful framework for investigating all of these fringe topics and strange, extraordinary experiences. Because it's been dealing with, you know, other worldviews and things for a long time. And I became interested in the question, you know, drawing on my experiences of seeing these fairy creatures and things like that, of why it is that people come to believe in these beings. Mm. So I started from a position of thinking about belief, really, but I've moved away from that, I think, um, over time. And I came across this group in Bristol called the Bristol Spirit Lodge that seemed to provide a really useful it was useful because it was only about 10 minutes down the road from where I was living, which is kind of like a bit of a weird synchronicity in itself. Mm -hmm. And it was like a small group of people who regularly gathered during the week to basically develop trance and physical mediumship. And it seemed like the perfect opportunity for me to delve a little bit deeper into this question of why it is that people come to believe in spirits. And ultimately, the conclusion that I came to was that people come to believe in spirits because people have experiences of spirits. And obviously, when you start to engage with 
experience, then again, it opens up lots of different avenues that you can start to explore. And it leads you into questions of ontology and what really exists. Like I said, that moves you away from thinking about beliefs to thinking more about experiences and ontological possibilities. Mm-hmm. And the Bristol Spirit Lodge stuff is so interesting. Can you paint us a picture of what a typical session looked like there, at least procedurally? What seemed to be important for opening up these channels of communication? Yeah, basically, the understanding that I came to with the seances that I attended was that everything in the seance is geared towards the induction of altered states of consciousness in both the medium and in the sitters. So the usual protocol of the seances was that, first of all, you'd have kind of like an informal chat in the house and you'd discuss, you know, what you've been doing in the week. You'd have a cup of tea and all those kinds of things. And I mean, these are really normal people, (laughs) whatever normal is. These are kind of like mainstream people with an interest in spirit mediumship. And so it it was very interesting in that sense. And then you go out into the lodge, which was... um, a wooden shed in the garden, literally is like a five foot by five foot shed. So it was quite small and intimate space. Inside the lodge, they had a circle of chairs laid out. And in the very middle of the room, there was a wooden platform, kind of like a wooden panel right on the floor, which they would put objects on for spirits to manipulate. The other reason that the panel was there was so that if there was any suspicion that the medium was sneaking around the room or anything, you'd be able to hear them walking on this wooden panel. So that was kind of like a safeguard. And then in the very corner of the room, they had a curtained off area called the cabinet, which is a, you know, something that spiritualists have been using since, you know, way back when the spiritualist movement began in the 19th century. So the medium sits in the cabinet. The circle leader will put on some music and they'll put on red lights. Usually the circle leader reads a prayer, which invites spirits to come down into the lodge to make themselves known through the medium. This prayer is also like a prayer of protection, because obviously if you're inviting spirits down, you don't want to be inviting down negative entities. So they do try to cover their bases in that sense. They call themselves a non-denominational spiritualist group, because they don't affiliate themselves with big organizations like the Spiritualist National Union. Um, They don't consider themselves to be religious in any way. When they're doing these prayers, they do still kind of call out to a higher power, or um, we could call it God, or some kind of a great spirit that will do the protecting. So that was interesting as well, the way the religion and the paranormal kind of merge together and from the middle of them, you get this whole other way of thinking about the nature of God. So that was pretty interesting. (laughs) It is interesting because it's the religious listeners I have that anytime I do a show focused on magic or a figure in magical history, they get real nervous about it. And it's almost like they've made their mind up that these are negative people and that, you know, in the big conspiracy, most of it's all occultists and that occult equals bad and all that stuff. But in a previous interview, I heard you mention upbeat music as being helpful in the seance and spirits like a jovial atmosphere. I'd never heard that before, but we have that religious residue that says if spirits are real, then they're just demons and they're bad. Did you encounter anything more demonic or something you felt was dangerous along the way that would jive with that sort of belief? I don't think I did, actually, to be honest. I didn't encounter any you know, anything that we would think of as demonic or evil. Most of the spirits that come through are, well, basically how it works is each medium has their own, they call them a spirit team, which in my experience at the Bristol Spirit Lodge could be, you know, anything from like two to 16 different individuals who come through. But the point is that they are regular communicators. So it's not like when you go to a spiritualist church and you want to make contact with the spirit of a dead loved one or anything like that, you go to these seances because you want to communicate with a set group of spirits. So they weren't actively inviting in new spirits every time. You would just go and you'd meet with this same group of spirits, which was really interesting because you get to know the spirits over a long period of time. Um, You get to notice quirks that they have. You get to notice 
whether their vocal tonality changes over time and things like that. And I was impressed to see that actually the individual spirit personalities in these spirit teams were quite consistent over weeks and months Hmm. and even years. I like that. And it is sort of my general worldview. Of course, nothing is absolute, but I just feel like it's mostly residue from religious authorities that want to paint this picture that it's all bad. It's not people who have real experience in magic saying that. It's generally people who are just afraid to try. I mean, isn't it coincidental that we don't teach meditation in our culture, we say magic is evil or dumb, and then also psychedelics are illegal? I mean, these are the components that all get you there. These are all the roads that lead to learning that there's more than the material world, and yet they're all roadblocked. I find that to be pretty convenient. Yeah, I think it also has something to do with the rise of priesthood and things like that. We're dealing with the leftovers of that, where communication with the gods or with the spirits was a job just for one person. I mean, before the rise of the monotheistic religions, obviously they were priests, but we might be able to speculate on whether the spiritual world was a little bit more democratic, perhaps. (laughs) But over time, and as a hangover of, you know, Christianity, all of these techniques that are available to human beings to make contact with that world have been demonized, literally demonized. So yeah, it's pretty interesting stuff. Right. And a certain kind of personal power comes from engaging with that. So again, convenient that someone else would want to say, actually, give me some money and I'll facilitate this stuff for you. And I'll tell you what God wants you to do. I think it's a little silly that people don't, they're just not more curious about that motivation and that and that what might actually be behind the proverbial door number three. So this is a lot of fun. Yeah. You know, you talk about a lot of anthropologists in the book and what you liked and didn't like about their various approaches to studying this sort of stuff. And you say that you were greatly influenced by the work of Edith Turner, who you mentioned earlier. To quote you, you write, in the same way that if one follows the recipe for a chocolate cake in detail, a chocolate cake will result from the procedure. If one follows a ritual properly, the ritual outcome will be achieved. This is precisely what Edith Turner found when she participated in the Ihamba ceremony in Zambia. Can you tell us about what she witnessed in that ceremony? Yeah, I first heard about this during, I think it was in the final year of my undergraduate degree. I was taking a module on religion and cosmology with Fiona Bowie, who would go on to be my PhD supervisor. And when I heard this story of Edith Turner's, I was totally blown away (laughs) because she's full on talking about the experience you know, as an ontological event or as a, you know, as a real experience that she had that seemed to accord well with the beliefs of her informants. So basically what happened was she'd been to participate in this Ihamba ceremony with her husband, Victor Turner, who was a very influential anthropologist. And it's from Victor Turner that we get all of these concepts of liminality and things like that and communitas. So he was a very big, important anthropologist. But they were relatively reserved anthropologists to begin with, observing the rituals but not necessarily participating in them. And then a few years later, after Victor Turner had passed away, Edith Turner went back out into the field, back out to Zambia with the Ndembu people, and she decided that she was going to allow herself to kind of participate in this ritual fully, bodily and emotionally for the first time, really. The ritual basically takes place over a bunch of hours. And the idea is that there is an afflicted person, a member of the community who's been afflicted by an Ihamba spirit. And this spirit enters into the body of the person and it kind of moves around. And they say that it moves around the body kind of in the form of a human tooth that kind of moves around inside and causes all sorts of problems. So They do a bunch of ritual actions. They have a medicine man kind of thing. You know, that's probably not the best term to use, but, you know, a healer or a shaman. And over the period of this ritual of dancing and chanting and, you know, all sorts of ritual actions, at the very climax, Edith Turner felt that she was about to, she said she felt as if something was about to be born. And it was a kind of a palpable feeling amongst the whole group that something was about to happen. And at the very climax, 
she saw the medicine man scooping out the back of the afflicted patient, what she described as a grey ectoplasmic kind of blob thing. <laughs> yes, yeah, so it's totally crazy stuff. And this was the Ahamba spirit. This was the entity itself. And the medicine man held the spirit in his hands, quickly put it into a jar, and they capped it over with a castor oil leaf, a castor leaf. And when they went to have a look inside the jar afterwards to see what was in there, sure enough, there was a human tooth in there. <laughs> so it was a pretty crazy kind of experience to have. And she said it was this experience that basically led her to conclude that in order to understand ritual, and we can extend that to you know religion or the paranormal or you know, any of these kinds of things, in order to understand them, we have to learn to see them the way that the native sees them. And by native, she doesn't mean, you know, like primitive tribal people or anything like that. She means like the people who participate and created those rituals and all of those kinds of things. So it was big influence on me anyway. Yeah, that's a wild story. Sounds like something out of Constantine. Yeah. But I do like that attitude that studying the edges of reality and these most epic of experiences is how we should map our world, not by studying the mundane. That's the obvious part. You know, we should know where the boundaries are, if there even are any. Mm. But I hear a story like that. I think listeners hear something like that. And it's definitely fascinating. But it doesn't jive with the experiences we have or anyone we know has generally. And you hear about the ideas of possession or that entities can cause us ailments or be a contributing factor. Like maybe you have a headache or something or back pain. And I just don't really know what is a good way to think about that stuff. Do you have a model for the influence that entities have on us or how to draw those lines, especially in the Western world when people don't even believe they exist? It's like, well, not believing they exist doesn't really make them not exist. So do they still affect people? That sort of thing. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I don't have any kind of formalized model to think about it, but I definitely think that it's a possibility. And if we take seriously the evidence that we have from, you know, parapsychology, um, the evidence that we have from mediumship research and all those kinds of things, it certainly seems to suggest that there's at least the possibility that these entities are out there. And if they are out there, then they've always been out there and they've always been interacting with human beings. So, you know, if we take that as our starting point, then, you know, the fact that we don't believe in them anymore doesn't mean that they're not still interacting with us in certain ways and that they might be spiritual or metaphysical causes behind different kinds of ailments and things that we just don't think in those kinds of terms anymore. It's a hard thing to parse out because I've also heard people talk about maybe if you're just irritable or if you're acting shitty to your spouse for a week, maybe you need a clearing in your house or a protection spell. Yeah. Or it's like, maybe it's just been hot lately, or maybe you're just pissed about your economic situation. It's really hard to isolate causes, but I think spirits are in the mix somewhere. I just don't want to give them too much credit or not enough. And it's hard to really find where that dial should be calibrated to. Yeah, it's true. It makes me think of the weird relationship in the 19th century between spiritualism and things like multiple personality disorders and a hypnosis and stuff. The paranormal researcher David Scott Rogo called this an, an infinite boundary, that there's this constant crossing over of this boundary between spirit possession and multiple personality and all those kinds of things. And actually, when you start to think about it in those terms, it's, well, it becomes very difficult to pull the threads apart. That's a great point. I live here in San Diego, and we have a real homelessness crisis. And Sometimes I will sit and just kind of from a distance, like really observe someone who's, you know, screaming on the corner to no one. And I'm like, is that, is that that person? Is that a spirit? What's going on there? What really is that? And, you know, there's a hundred people walking by them just kind of crossing the street and clutching their purse. But it is kind of fascinating to think about it. You know, if someone's like, well, spirits aren't real. Well, Maybe you just walked past one who was possessing someone. I mean, I don't, I just don't know. No, yeah. It's really interesting stuff. It also brings to mind all of the, the kind of therapeutic potentials of mediumship development and all of those kinds of things. 
that's one thing that I started to think about when I was doing my research was that a lot of the mediums that I spoke to said that throughout their lives as they were growing up, they'd had strange experiences. One medium, for example, said, you know, when she used to go into old houses and things, she would get this horrible feeling. She said it felt like something passing through her body. And she described it as like, you're trying to pull a jumper off inside out. Mm. It's a very strange way of describing it, but she felt some kind of like a pull and it used to really freak her out and, you know, it made her really scared because it was such a strange sensation. And then it was only, you know, for a few years down the line, following a few other kinds of trajectories that they started to develop mediumship kind of formally and realized that all of these feelings and um, experiences that they'd had, these anomalous experiences they'd had were indications of their you know future mediumistic calling and it was through developing mediumship that they were able to kind of domesticate those wild anomalous experiences and put them to some kind of use and i just wonder about the you know the possibilities of the therapeutic potentials of these different traditions that are being totally ignored by mainstream western medicine a whole load of stuff there to be explored Right. And it is very, very frustrating that this hasn't been done already with like all the years that the sciences have had and all this stuff. I am super grateful that you're deciding to do this work, but it's also so frustrating. It's like, you know, what have you been doing? This to me is like really where the rubber meets the road if you want to study reality and the human experience. And to maybe elaborate on a portion of your work, tell the people what ontological flooding is this seems to be a big part of the jack hunter soup isn't it yeah my um ontological flooding is basically the term that i've developed for my approach to investigating well anything really it doesn't have to be the paranormal but you know it works very well with the paranormal and basically the idea is we need to entertain multiple possibilities simultaneously if we start to reduce ourselves down to a single explanation then there's a whole load of other things that we're really missing out on the idea kind of came out of my research on mediumship and i saw that especially in anthropology there's been so many different explanatory frameworks applied to it so for example a very popular explanation of spirit mediumship and possession at the moment is a kind of cognitive explanation where they explain mediumship in terms of like cognitive processes in the brain and it's just a way that we perceive the world and the way we think about things and there's no real, you know, there's no ontological basis to it. Another explanation is the kind of social functional explanation where mediumship performs a function of providing an opportunity for social protest in societies where women particularly are suppressed it gives them an opportunity to kind of speak out. Another explanation is the medical reductionist model, where they basically say that spirit mediumship and spirit possession are a form of a pathological condition. Um, so they might associate it with multiple personality disorder or schizophrenia or things like that. And basically, I was like, well, there's so many different explanations here for spirit possession. And I can see that lots of them kind of make sense but if we take them in themselves as a single complete explanation they don't seem to account for everything that's going on so for example social functional explanations don't really take into account the experience of mediumship and what mediumship feels like to the person who's undergoing it or none of those kind of dominant anthropological approaches take seriously the possibility that genuine psi phenomena are a possibility or that spirits might actually be real. So, you know, I kind of came to the conclusion that when we're thinking about these things, we need to include all of these possibilities and more. And that's what I mean by ontological flooding is that we need to kind of flood ourselves with all of these possibilities if we're going to get anywhere near close to understanding the true complexity of these issues. Right. Instead of an either or approach, it's both and. Like, let's throw all the ideas up there and whichever are the most valid will stay around and the other ones will fall by the wayside. Mm -hmm. And it's like altered states of consciousness are so key to these experiences. You can almost empathize with those camps that 
feel like it's all in the head, but that's still so dismissive. And maybe it's about arbitrary categorization between real and all in your head because, I mean, to the person who's experiencing it, ask them and they'll tell you like, this wasn't necessarily an illusion Mm -hmm. or a hallucination. This is a very real thing to them. And so it does get into that kind of semantics of categorization to a degree. Yeah, definitely. It makes me think of what you're saying there, a quote that I found from Jung, where he was talking about psychological truths. And he said that psychological truths are just as real as any other kind of like physical or biological truths. So we can't really put these arbitrary brackets around experiences and, you know, beliefs and things like that. We can't say that they don't have any ontological validity in themselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's good stuff. Yeah, I like that. And so let me also ask you about Charlie. This was a specific entity that you seem to have ongoing communication with. This is pretty provocative. Yeah, Charlie was a spirit that I met at the Bristol Spirit Lodge. Um, He came through a medium called John, who was a regular sitter at the lodge. So he would come to seances, he would sit in with other mediums who were developing, but he was also quite an advanced trance medium himself. And he'd done a lot of training and different mediumship techniques. He'd done a lot of platform mediumship in spiritualist churches where they you know, they say, is there a J coming through? Can anyone accept that? He'd done all of that kind of stuff. He'd done shamanic trance development and things like that. And eventually he moved on to developing his mediumship at the Bristol Spirit Lodge. And Charlie was his main spirit guide. He was the spirit that would kind of take control of his body during seances and would act as a kind of a gatekeeper to let other spirits come through during the trance session. And he was also very keen on telling us about his kind of philosophical views and his ideas about the nature of reality and all those kinds of things. So people who were going to the lodge would really enjoy his conversations. They would love to sit with him and talk about philosophy and ask him questions and stuff. Hmm. And he was really impressive because he was pretty consistent over a number of weeks, months, and years. His philosophy didn't really change. The messages that he were giving were consistent. And yeah, so I spent a lot of time just after I'd finished my undergraduate degree. I spent a lot of time transcribing recordings of the seances that we had with him uh, just to capture these ideas that he was talking about. It's pretty interesting. I really enjoyed it. The funny thing about Charlie was that I can't remember his real name at the moment, but he told us that in a previous life he had been a Chinese monk, which is pretty uh, you know, stereotypical <laughs> of these spirit guides. But he'd been a Chinese monk. He said he was called Dao Lin or something like that which again sounds very stereotypical. But he then took on this name of Charlie to make himself more relatable to the people at the Bristol Spirit Lodge, and it kind of stuck. So he was like an ancient Chinese philosopher, really, talking through the body of a suburban Bristolian. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I really found that to be super fascinating. To cite a paragraph from Engaging the Anomalous, you had this contact with the spirit called Charlie through a medium who acted as a host, and you say, But rather than using him as an informant to examine the social makeup of the lodge, I asked him questions about the spirit world and what exactly he was. His answers offered intriguing food for thought. Perhaps most revealing was his assertion that he was not the product of a single source, but rather a collective manifestation. There are three sides involved, the spirit, the conscious host, and the subconscious host. When in a trance state, Charlie explained, all three components must be in a state of common trust. Without this blending, Charlie would not have been able to manifest. Now, that's what I'm talking about, man. That is interesting intel. I guess, could you elaborate on what that says to you about the mechanisms between spirits and people? Is it a little more clear post-Charlie? That's part of my desire to push anthropology a little bit further than it's usually willing to go. So usually anthropologists just focus on you know, the social group, the social facts, if you like, the makeup of the group, the how they interact with each other and all those kinds of things. But I wanted to find out more about the spirit world and trying to do a kind of anthropology of the spirit world. 
So obviously, the best people to talk to about that are spirits. And yeah, it was really interesting to hear that he was aware of the fact that he was the product of multiple influencing parts. I think we could take that a step further as well and say that he was also partly the product of the influence of the people who were sitting in the seance and communicating. In fact, that's one of the things that I found most interesting about the spirits is how they are socially manifested, if you like, Hmm. that they are the product of all of these different influencing parts. Yeah, different influences, different consciousnesses interacting with each other. And then this personality of Charlie kind of emerges at the intersection. Something that I noted during my research as well was that there were similarities with other mediumistic traditions where they also see this kind of communal manifestation going on. So there was an anthropologist called Nurit Bird David who was studying this tribal Indian group in India. And they interact with these spirits called Devara, which are kind of like nature spirits. And she wrote about how the process of manifesting these spirits was one of social interactions through conversations and through dialogue. So they would do very similar things to the kind of things that I was seeing in the Bristol Spirit Lodge. They would start talking to the spirit. They would kind of coax it forward. The spirit might be kind of sluggish to begin with and slow, and then eventually it would kind of come up to speed. And it was dialogue that reinforced the presence of the spirit. So obviously, if no one was talking to the spirit during the seance, then the spirit wouldn't be able to manifest. The dialogue seemed to be an important part, and the spirits are kind of the product of relationships between us and the spirit world and between the medium and the spirit. And basically, these spirits seem to be quite complex in the way that they manifest. There's lots of different influencing factors going on. Hmm. So fascinating. And you mentioned nature spirits, and that got me thinking, lately, I've had this impression that there is a connection as much as there is between altered states and this contact, there's also a connection between nature and entity contact. I think maybe one reason why we have hundreds of millions of people who deny the existence of a spirit world is because the Western world, these concrete cities, they kind of gear us to thinking that way, or they allow us the luxury of ignoring the spirit world. But if you look at indigenous cultures, Obviously not without exception, but a great deal of them kind of just take for granted there are spirits. And I've had people talk to me about, just think about the the state of consciousness you would be in if you spent a night in the wilderness alone. Nope. We don't do that. You know, we never do that. And we might go our whole lives without doing that. And you can imagine that that state of consciousness, that's like a natural altering. And you might start to see forms in the darkness or hear things that aren't there. And maybe that's the spirit world creeping back into your life after you've ignored it for so long. I'm not so sure. But it is funny because you study people in the Western world. And generally, people think of anthropologists as like the Jane Goodall of people. And I do think there might be a, a nature component. What do you think about that? Yeah, definitely. It ties in with something that I'm working on at the moment. I just had a short article published about the possible role of things like permaculture and practical ecology of actually, you know, hands-on engagement with the natural world and how that leads to extraordinary experiences. And a lot of the time, these extraordinary experiences are kind of like personified experiences. So you might be working observing and interacting with the land which is kind of like a permaculture principle and through that observation and interaction begin to realize that the trees and the different kinds of plants and the soil and the water and all these kinds of things have a kind of personal quality to them right so i do think that there is something going on here and it's something that i'm exploring at the moment (laughs) but you know if you think about these traditional societies in the past Um, they have been fully interacting with the natural world. And their awareness of these spiritual beings is much more marked than our own. And I think you're right in pointing out the fact that we spend so much of our time indoors, not connected with the natural world. And I don't think it's a coincidence that, you know, we don't believe in spirits as much 
And, you know, we don't have these experiences often as other people do. Mm. And now I don't want to drag you down in the conspiratorial muck with me any more than I have to. You're an accomplished PhD. But, you know, you mentioned the river spirits thing. I did a previous episode with a guest, Michael Wan, who just as an example, took the Susquehanna River because he lives near it. And he looked at all the points on the river, the mouths of the river, where they converge. And there's all kinds of monuments and structures and in some cases rituals, like even the Groundhog's Day ritual takes place right at where the where the rivers converge. And his premise overall is just that there are people high up above us or older traditions or secret societies that carry on these offerings to river spirits or place their monuments on certain ley lines and that there is high-level magic going on engaging with the natural world. It's just not on the radar of the regular person. And of course, that would suit the benefit of someone who is trying to engage with something for personal gain. If no one else knows about it, of course, that's going to help you as well. But I'm just curious what you think about that nexus of conspiracy and ritual, the idea that some of this stuff does go on in the Western world, just above our pay grade. Yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if it does. I mean, people who have money and power and all these kinds of things can pretty much do what they want. And we know that, you know, through things like Freemasonry and all of these other kinds of secret societies, that once you get up to higher levels, then it does start to become very much like ritual magic. And all of those ideas are kind of floating around. So I really, really wouldn't be surprised if there were people who were continuing to practice these kinds of traditions in the upper echelons, if you want to call it upper. But that's one side of thing. But there's also the undercurrent of folk magic and all of these kinds of things that's still going on as well. Probably there are still people, just like I've discovered people in the West who communicate with spirits, you know, on a daily basis. There are still people who practice natural magic and Wicca and all these kinds of things, obviously. These are movements that are growing. So it's coming from the bottom up as well. Mm-hmm. And I think tying all of this stuff in with climate change and the Paris Climate Agreement and all of that kind of stuff and the realization that we're going to have to have major social and cultural transformations if we're going to prevent our planet from going into the total collapse, that we're going to have to re-engage with these older traditions and we're going to have to interact more with the spirits and the different entities that inhabit the world around us. If we don't start to do that, then we're never going to bring about that social and cultural change that we need. Mm. I'm with you there. Cheers to that. And I, of course, think that by better educating ourselves, we might better recognize rituals or monuments or things that have been going on that we haven't been able to recognize. Once we learn the context of how these spirit interactions work and how magic might work, then we can say, oh, that is something we should look at, or that's not it, you know, because in conspiracy shows, people can get all crazy about all kinds of things. And it's like, well, if you have real context, a real education about magic, you can kind of dial that in more appropriately. So Mm. I just, I I like the work you're doing and, uh, you know, I have weird applications for it, but um, to go back to Charlie a minute, you know, we talked about the gateway. We talked about the channels of communication, and how they can be opened. But you also asked him about his world, about the spirit world itself. Can you give us any insight into how you conceptualize the spirit world based on Charlie's insight? I think a lot of people just think of it as like a big cloud. <laughs> like I don't know. Mm. What does it look like to you? Well, one of the things that most struck me about Charlie's explanations of the spirit world, it's not like a physical landscape with fixed features, for example. It seems to be something that shifts and can change depending on basically what it seems to be is a realm of consciousness, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. It's something that is affected by our beliefs and our expectations and all of those kinds of things. The Charlie would talk about, you know, this is pretty common knowledge in spiritualist circles and those kind of places, but The things that we believe when we die, they affect the kind of place that we go to after we're dead. We believe that we're going to go to Valhalla, for example, if that's what we firmly believe, then 
the kind of spirit world that we enter into will be, you know, like a Valhalla Norse kind of spirit world. Mm. See what I mean? It's a fluctuating place. I think perhaps one of the best ways to think about it is maybe as a kind of a dream land. (laughs) Mm. When I was teaching religious studies for A-level a few years ago and came across this guy, H.H. Price, who is a philosopher interested in psychical research, which is pretty cool. Mm -hmm. And that was his idea, basically, was that the afterlife is kind of like a dream world. It's a realm of pure consciousness, and it can be negative, you know, depending on the way that we think about it, or it can be positive depending on the way we think about it. I think that seems to be what it's like, based on what Charlie's told me anyway. (laughs) Well, I think that makes a lot of sense, because some people talk about that there's baked in mechanisms in life that prepare you for death if you engage with them. One could be sleep. Just the fact that we dream at all, that we go to this place every night. We forget most of it, but we do it every 12 hours. Like, yeah. and then when we're on our deathbed, we're like, Oh my God, what's this going to be like? You know, I'm so scared. I'm so worried. Well, you've been practicing with training wheels. Yeah every day of your whole life you just haven't been thinking of it in that context and there's probably other baked in mechanisms as well that help us to prepare for that i mean if you look at secret societies not to bring it back to that constantly but their whole philosophy is kind of about self-determination and enlightenment and then they go back to the egyptian mystery schools where they seem to be really focused on real engagement with that spirit world, prolonged contact and journeying and all that kind of stuff. So you can even push it even further. But even if you don't want to, you at least have your nightly journey to the dream world. And that could be relatively the same thing. I mean, maybe I'm thinking, maybe I'm making it way too complex and it really is just that simple. You know, I think it makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah. It makes sense that we would be constantly with our dream cycles and all these kinds of things, dipping in and out of that world and preparing ourselves for the transition. It makes sense. (laughs) Yeah. Well, if it's not that, then you have a whole nother world you need to explain because we need to explain the dream world too. So I would assume that hopefully they're probably the same just for simplicity. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And you have a, an essay titled an anthropology of the spirit world. And that's really provocative. I wish that was a field of study. If it was a field of study or something you could get a PhD in, what would it look like to you? I guess kind of like shamanism, really, right? Well, yeah. An anthropology of the spirit world would be very much like anthropology as a discipline as it is now, making use of these ideas about ontological flooding and this idea of cognitive empathetic engagement, which is an idea that my supervisor has been using to explore the spirit world and kind of trying to engage with that as an ethnographic field in itself with the afterlife and the spirit world as something that we can study ethnographically. And that could be in any kind of way. It could be through studying shamans in the Amazon or shamanic traditions up in Siberia or whatever. It could be dealing with mediums in suburban Bristol, or it could be some other kind of like an anthropology of dreaming you know phenomenological approach trying to understand the experience of dreams you know things like that that's how i imagine an anthropology of the spirit world would work be engaging with all of those different lines of inquiry and trying to build up as clear a picture as we can aware of the fact also that this picture is probably going to be quite complex (laughs) (laughs) yes well so many little case studies you have in the exploring the anomalous book or engaging with the anomalous book, they're little clues, they're breadcrumbs to fleshing out this map. And you touch on a guy named Patrick Giesler and the results of his work that seem to show that culturally significant symbols are more potent than something like a random number generator when engaging with the paranormal. And that's interesting. What does that say to you? Or how would you explain that to people who are trying to unpack that? Yeah, so Patrick Giesler is really interesting anthropologist who has been fully engaged with parapsychology and you know not ashamed to say that he's been doing that for you know like 30 years or so so he's a real pioneer of this paraanthropology or the anthropology of the paranormal but what it suggests is that kind of like what i've been saying already that our cultural beliefs and expectations 
are important, that they facilitate our, our psi abilities. So what he found was that he would get negative results if he did experiments with random number generators and symbols that we recognize from our culture, because they don't mean anything to people down in the Amazon. It's not relevant to them. Mm-hmm. But if you shift the symbols to something that means something to them, that has relevance to their everyday lives and they understand culturally, then the psi effect seemed to be much stronger, much more powerful. It ties in with the work of Italian anthropologist called Ernesto De Martino. And he basically came to the conclusion that parapsychological experiments reduce paranormal phenomena to, you know, really small effects. So when we think of the kinds of experiments that they do in the lab, the effects that they get are so small, they're only just statistically significant. When we compare that to the experiences that people have in in real life, or especially to the kinds of experiences that people like the people in shamanic traditions have, there's no comparison. The real life experiences are always much more kind of vivid. They're more potent. It's not just statistically significant events. It's like major synchronicities and major apparitions and and crazy stuff, like the really crazy stuff. So it seems to be that the paranormal or whatever we want to call it thrives in its natural environment, if that makes sense. And when we try to bring it into the laboratory, we kind of kill it in a way. (laughs) Yeah, it's a difficult thing to do to take it out of the environment because it is kind of all in the soup that makes these experiences happen. Mm. And uh, one example that I really liked is some neuroimaging research conducted by Julio Fernando Perez regarding automatic writing. Mediums claim to be taken over by entities while going into these trance states and these entities are communicating messages from these human husks. Well, let's see if we can test that. Turns out there is something measurable in that instance, right? Yeah, they found really interesting things like when these mediums were doing automatic writing, which is where they kind of let the spirit do the writing for them, they found that the areas of the brain that are usually associated with doing complex activities like writing and speaking and things like that were actually the activity in those areas was actually reduced, which it kind of goes contrary to what we would expect, you know, from a common sense perspective. We would expect to see if someone's doing a complex activity like writing, that those areas are going to be lit up. And then I link this up with some more research on psychedelics, where they found under the influence of psilocybin, at the kind of peak of the experience, when their experiences are most vivid and most extraordinary, the activity in the brain seemed to be lower, and the blood flow was decreased and all those kinds of things. And all of that kind of lends credence to the possibility that during these psychedelic states and during these trance states, we are actually surrendering control. We are no longer in control and something else seems to be kind of coming through. Mm-hmm. Just goes to show that, you know, when these mediums say that they're having a trance state or some kind of anomalous psychological processes, they probably are <laughs> because it's demonstrated that something actually happens. Yeah, I love when we can actually get that recorded data. I mean, it's harder to deny that. It's harder to have presumptions about hard evidence. Mm. And so what's up? Next for you, man, talk to us about the realms you plan to tackle going forward. Yeah. Well, what I'm doing at the moment is I'm working on an edited book called, I think I'm going to call it Greening the Paranormal, which is about these connections between anomalistics, between parapsychology and paranthropology and all that kind of stuff and ecology. Yeah. So thinking about different ways of conceiving of intelligence in nature and um, all of the things that we've been talking about today. So I've been gathering a lot of really interesting articles from different scholars working in these kinds of areas and just trying to work out what this connection is between the paranormal and the natural world. Some of the things we've been talking about are like the role of culture in modulating the paranormal and the neurophysiological correlates of the paranormal and all of that stuff. We're starting to build up a bigger picture of how it fits in with all of these different domains of life 
And I think the the next step is to connect it into the wider ecological context or the networks between organisms and all that kind of stuff. So that's where I'm at at the moment. <laughs> mm, exciting. I think that's a perfect place to go. And uh, man, as uh, as we're closing this thing out, do also remind people about your previous work, your journal, all that good stuff. Of course, we probably want to give them your URL info because when you just Google Jack Hunter, you, you might not be in the mood for everything that comes up. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, there's a weird like, cheap ripoff of indiana jones called jack hunter as well which is really, really <laughs> annoying anyway um yeah there's my journal paranthropology which has been on a bit of a hiatus for about a year but it hasn't died and i am planning to do new issues of it it's just finding the time to fit it in with everything but if you're interested to look at all the back issues of that which has been going for about eight years now you can go to paranthropology.co.uk and you can access all of the journal there for free and download it. And if you want to find out more about all of my work as a whole, you can check out my personal website, which is jack-hunter.webstarts.com. I'm sure we can put a link up on your site to link to that. And then you can find all the news and different ideas that I've been thinking about recently on the blog and a collection of all my articles and books and everything. It's all up there. So Awesome. Wow, man. Well, I am just really impressed with all the work you've done. You are a great example of how a person can navigate the academic system and bring it around to how you want it to be rather than just dismissing the whole process and then limiting your life's options to just what's on the outside edges like I did. So much respect. Keep doing what you do and keep fighting the good fight. That's great. Thank you very much. You got it. Happy Ghost Day Halloweenies. What an appropriate episode for Halloween. And I didn't even plan it that way. And I usually don't. But sometimes we have these happy accidents. And speaking of happy accidents or synchronicities, as some people like to call them, I had heard Dr. Hunter on both Skeptico and Rune Soup and thought, yes, Jack is doing exactly the kind of thing that I'd like to highlight. And literally, as I was writing an email to him for an interview request, one came in from him about seeing if we could do a show together. And that has never happened. We had never spoken before, so that was about as unlikely as anything. Big thanks to the ethereal string pullers for putting us in contact. We're trying to find you a place in the Western world, spirits. We are trying. (laughs) But it all worked out. Clearly, the universe knows what makes for a good fit on THC. But this just gets back to my whole thing about studying or testing the paranormal head-on. If it's real, and it works, and it is and it does, then it should stand up to scrutiny. And that means a PhD doing professional research. Yeah, I know some of these things don't translate to being tested in the lab, but others do. We talked about some of those things. But as a side effect of propping up a guy like Dr. Hunter, I think we might put more cracks in that academia armor. So I like this one for a lot of reasons. And this magic, paranormal, nature nexus is probably going to get hit on a lot more going forward. And this connection, it might seem like a no-brainer on one hand, but on the other, we spend so little time in the natural world that it's hard to even take the paranormal, magical opinions of a person who's never engaged with nature seriously. I guess I'm saying that I think that association is so strong that it's kind of like a person who has only ever lived in the desert pontificating about penguins. Your opinion is of limited value to me if you've never been in the environment in which penguins thrive. You can say you've read books about them. You can tell me you bought a five-star rated penguin call on Amazon and you can't get it to work, but you're using it in the wrong environment. Call penguins all you want in the desert, they will not show up. It doesn't mean the tools to call them don't work, and it doesn't mean they don't exist. I think you know what I'm saying, but I don't see that need to be vague or shy about really going after these weird things if we do it right. I'm just sort of seeking that higher level conversation, no pun intended, about these things, and that's something we've sought out to do for a long time. It's not really new. But when it comes to some of the more out-there episodes I've done, things that involve something like perhaps an Andromeda Council, I used to think that was fun or entertaining just for its boldness, even if I couldn't verify it, of course. 
but some of those sorts of things are becoming less fun to me. Or maybe I should just say I'm not as proud of releasing those episodes as I am one like today. And I'm not alluding to any kind of sweeping change to THC. It's just how I'm feeling. And to be honest, I was actually just approached by one of the biggest names in the conspiratorial underbelly who is associated with just this sort of super wild, can't really verify it, pop conspiracy sagas. And I don't know what to do with it. It actually feels like a well-timed challenge from the universe. We will see every experience on this THC journey is new to me, and there is no manual. So I really appreciate listeners who aren't too critical or too harsh on me over the small things or when I misstep, because I really am just a regular guy doing the best I can. I kind of have a large audience that's always growing. Everyone has different opinions on me or what I should be doing. And we've had some drama over the past few months over little things that I probably just gave too much attention to. Lesson learned. I talked about some of that drama on Gramerica recently. And for some people, even that seemed to cause more problems than it solved. And you just can't please everyone. I'm also a guy who is dealing with this increased success for the first time. And maybe not always with the grace and poise of a trained media personality. Ultimately, it doesn't matter, and it's all good. And I think the shows have been pretty solid lately, and the guests, on point. Although the last one was a bit unbalanced, if that's the worst of our problems, then we're doing pretty great. But getting back to Dr. Jack, I look at his career, and I think about what sort of things I could have done if I hadn't been so stubborn in school, and only focused on where it was broken, rather than what I could do with it. And I hope some listeners, maybe younger ones than me, reflect on that as well. It reminds me of one of my favorite lines from Hamilton. At one point, Aaron Burr says, Talk less, smile more, don't let them know what you're against or what you're for. And that's wise. You can be a rebel without wearing it on your sleeve, especially in such a polarized climate. Obviously, Dr. Jack's thesis was on spirit mediumship. Nothing subtle about that. But he stated before that academia hasn't really been a huge problem for him. And I think part of it is his attitude. He's not abrasive to academia, but he's actually Jack Sparrowing his way right into the best of both worlds. Pushing the needle further for us fringy folks and also maintaining a sort of credibility and professionalism accepted in the mainstream. One foot in and one foot out, so to speak. And why is that important? Well... If we don't bridge the gap between the two worlds, then we just have two separate groups of people who have already made up their minds talking amongst themselves. It doesn't seem like we get too far with that. If we want to change the world, we have to learn how to communicate with the non-believers with a bit more nuance. And that burden is on us because we actually have the more accurate model, but we have to cite better information and make better arguments, whether we're talking about the paranormal or conspiracy or the esoteric. Just to stick with the paranormal, because that's what this show is about, someone who doesn't believe in that stuff probably puts a lot of blind faith in science, academia, and official accreditation. So now instead of saying, you're wrong, it is real, I know it, we say to those people, oh, you might be interested in this guy, Dr. Jack Hunter. He's got a PhD in anthropology, and he's written a pretty interesting book that contains some hard data and recorded results that you might find convincing. And yes, I know we can lead these man horses to truth water, but we can't make them drink. Sure, but it is just a better approach. I'm never going to be the Jack Hunter. I've come to terms with this. I'm never going to be the professional that's taken seriously. It's just too late for me. (laughs) But I can connect people to that person, and I think we should all sort of have that outlook. Because we aren't wrong. And a lot of the time, it's not really even about who's right or wrong. It's about who makes the most convincing arguments. And sometimes a guest will be spot on in one area, but if they use examples that are out of their lane, like the moon landing, or they cite some odd attachment to conventional politics, I just let that go and bring them back to what they're good at, to their expertise. So overall, I think Dr. Hunter checks a lot of those positive boxes and makes a killer ally in our mission to shape the world in our image. 
with eyes open to the fringes and the empire at our backs. That said, if you like the first hour, maybe it's time to join the Higher Side Chats Plus. Maybe this is the one that gets you to jump on over. I will say we talked about a lot of interesting stuff. We got into that old idea of cedar cultures versus spiritual teachers. How did these ideas get around the world? We talked about alien channelers, floating green goat heads, animism, the agency of rocks and rock mouths, which I still stand by is probably the strangest thing in any episode. And we threw a little more icing on that cake by talking about receiving signs from plants and animals, more wild stories from the field of anthropology, Dr. Hunter's possessed hand story, and a deep dive into ectoplasm, which was pretty damn fascinating too. So if you're listening on a podcast player on your phone, just look at the show notes and click the text of the plus pitch and the form comes up right away. Username, password, payment information, and boom, you're in. You don't even have to go to your PC and type in the URL for the HiresideChatsPlus.com slash subscribe. I'm a lazy guy. I know that we don't all want to go through those steps. Well, I've tried to make it easy for you. It's right there. Your hand is probably close to on it in this very moment. Signing up for Plus would be a huge help to me, but you don't really know me. What do you care about helping me? You actually get to double your higher side experience, and you obviously like it. You're here right now. Why not hear a full show or all the full shows? And then we can also, as a nice little side effect, sidestep all the deplatforming drama because we're in a closed, tight-knit system that doesn't rely on any of that. But that's the show, guys, and that's the month of October. Another five in the can. I know we got real close to down to the wire. It is the 31st with a show yesterday and one today, but we are going to be better for the rest of the year because I have a more open and simpler life ahead of me for the next two months. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the holiday. Give a hi there and hello to Dr. Hunter if you liked hearing him on THC, and I'll see you next time. Your move conventional paradigm proppers, paranormal data deniers, and people standing in the way of the coming wave of wider inclusion. Your fucking lucid dreams are so vivid, cause you go to bed at seven, and your brain comes alive, cause you hate your nine to five. You wake up with a dread, and make sure your cats are fed. Did your brain talk to a ghost, who moved your coffee and your toast, as you listen to the higher side chats? You get to your desk, and your boss says it's a mess And your soul slowly grows, to a place where nothing grows When you think he's not around, you insert a SETI sound The OM says turn it down, and you say it's just the higher side chats Oh, do you think you'll be invited To Bohemia Grove, to a Bilderberg Club Oh, do you think you'll be invited by a Rothschild to a party on a submarine Diving down To the center of the earth To the Marianas Trench Your teeth begin to clench From the sulfurous stench The mask you're given doesn't fit Cause you're not one of them Starting today, you'll make plans to get away There's no one to hold you down And the what-ifs start to drown Then you wake to the glare Of a cold fluorescent stare And the light winks at you Cause its life is almost through But it's holding on to quit time just like you It's time for the high side chats (laughs) 